So the one thing we know and we've learned over the years that we can never make too much of Jesus. You know, and it's important when folk come into where we are, whether it's an individual or a group of people that love Jesus, it's important that they know he is our savior. They can't walk into a meeting like this and kind of guess where they're singing about themselves, where they're talking about how great they are. No, it's all about Jesus. It's all about understanding who he is, understanding that before time, God had already planned our salvation and Christ has put up his hand and it was the Father's will. It was God's will to send Jesus to the cross to pay for our sin so that God could have this inheritance. And so I want to know Jesus. I want to know him more and more and more. And so in this church, we are committed to making the main one, the main thing. Yes, God uses individuals and we see it in scripture. But whenever Paul opens his mouth in the letters, it's always about giving God glory. It's not about Paul the great one. It's about God the great one. And so I want to encourage us as well is let his glory be seen in everything. And so therefore this church and every individual should be a true reflection of Jesus. A scripture is going to come up on the screen and if you want to turn it, turn with me in your Bibles and read it there. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Well, kind of for the next three weeks is going to form the foundation to what we're talking about. He is the image of the invisible God. We don't see him. We don't. But yet we believe in him. And so as we read the scriptures and as we develop a relationship with Jesus, he is the image of God. Through Jesus, we know who God is. Through Jesus, we can have a relationship with God. He's the firstborn of all creation. In other words, all of this was made, and we'll see it, through Jesus and for Jesus. Let's not mistake this, because there's a kind of, uh, in those days, there was a school of thought, a cult called Gnosticism. And they believed that Christ was the first creation. In other words, the Father created God, uh, Jesus, Jesus created the Holy Spirit, and then so on. And then you have this kind of cascading down waterfall of creation. No, Jesus is God. And all of this was created to give glory to Jesus. Awesome. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So the very atoms and the, the microscopic makeup of this world is all held, held together. Not only does he hold salvation and thereby the church together through his blood on the cross, but physically everything is held together by Jesus. Everything. And he is the head of the body. Did you hear that? It's not the, who's the lead elder? He's the most important in the church. Or who's the head of the home? He's the most important. Or who's the head of the country? No, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Christ was the first one to defy death. He rose from the death, the dead, and he defied whatever death held. He defied that so that we too could walk in in, in his victory. 
He is the beginning firstborn from the dead that he might in everything be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Everything about God was reconciliation. The world was wayward. The world had rejected Jesus, God, and everything to do with God. Starting in the garden and from then on, we kind of marched forward through every era of history in rebellion. And today, left up to our own devices, we choose rebellion. We choose sin. We choose a life without God. But through Christ, he was able to reconcile us to God. That's awesome. That's Christianity. And I want to encourage you today, guys listening at home, and any of us here, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he is the only one that can restore our relationship with the Father. That rebellion can be dealt with. That heart of sin, that kind of default to always do the wrong thing can be dealt with. And he has dealt with it through his blood on the cross. So I want to encourage you, don't go home yet today without sorting that relationship out. It's easy. It's actually easy. It's not a church function. It's actually Christianity in its basic form. Is I ask God to forgive me of my sin. And through his blood on the cross, he bore the price for that sin. And I receive him into my heart as Lord and Savior. Do you remember that day that you prayed that prayer? I remember that day so clearly. And the joy. I remember how nervous I was to go to the front because of all these strange-looking Christians. I thought, wow, you know, what are they going to think? You know, because the pastor just said, if you have sin in your life and want to receive Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior, come to the front. So what did they think when I walked to the front? I had sin in my life. They were all going to think I'm a sinner. And you know what Paul said? Out of all the sinners, I'm the chief. <laughs> so we need to come to terms with the fact that that's it. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We need a relationship with him. Amen. This is what George Whitfield says. There is none comparable to Jesus Christ. He is the highest dignity. He is the glory of heaven, the darling of eternity, admired by angels, dreaded by devil, devils, and adored by the saints. It's all about Jesus. And there has been a move over the past, I'd say, 10 years. Our singing has become different. The, the kind of way we advertise ourselves as churches have become different. The way we look at life, we've made it about him and less about ourselves. We've made our singing about lifting up the name of Jesus and less about our feelings. Even though those are important, but the center of our focus is Jesus. So... We're going to look at today Jesus in the Word of God, Jesus the suffering servant next week, and then Jesus the risen King. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. If any of you have ever looked at the historical evidence of Jesus and the evidence of Jesus in Scripture, there is more evidence of Jesus in history, and there are more prophecies with incredible detail than any other person that has ever kind of lived, more than any other person. And you can pick a popular character and, and kind of as you look at the history of this person or look at the writings of him today, there is no greater person ever written about than Jesus. 
He has got more prophecies and more records of his existence. And here is an amazing prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with, the, with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever, forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the zeal of God, the passion of God has done this. He has sent us his son. There is just so much detail of, of Jesus, his coming, his life, his work, his ministry, what he came to accomplish and that was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so as we go through Scripture, Scripture is loaded with the revelation of Christ. And we know Scripture is in many forms. Scripture isn't a treatise or a philosophy that is written down. Scripture is narrative. It's poetry. Uh, it's history recorded. It's all kinds of literature. But the common thread through it all is that God is going to visit us by sending His Son. And through his son, we're going to be reconciled to the father. You can pick up any book of the Bible, and we'll read that later. Any part of scripture, and the rich theme of Jesus Christ is going to come out. Of course, we know we can look at nature and understand there's got to be a God. We can look at the heavens, and we understand there's got to be a God. That's why people in their simplicity looked up at the sky, and they started to worship the stars. But we worship one who is greater than that. We worship him who created those things. And you know, there are, I don't know, over 20, 30 variables that give life on this planet. And God made all of those so that we could exist. And then into this rebellious mess, he sends his son as a child. And through his son, we eventually have this amazing life. And so only with Jesus and salvation as the lens does all of Scripture make sense. And so when you read, there's, all we're going to do is just encounter another revelation of Jesus. It's interesting. Uh, this is what Tozer says. Satan's greatest weapon is man's ignorance of God's Word. So if you want to get victory over people, stop them reading the Word of God. And you know, you'll often hear from the front, come on guys, you've got to get back into reading scripture. You, you need to have a, 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 some kind of system you, so that when you do leave off, you can go back to. And we need to be consistent with it. Is it because we get commission on Bibles that are sold? You know, this is the thing. This is our kind of, we've got to pump it, you know. Buy the Bible with my name on it or my notes. No, we know when you read scripture, you're going, to come, you're going to encounter God. Charles Spurgeon said, to know God is the highest and the best form of knowledge. And so in all my learning and all my understanding and all my reading, I want to get to know him. C.S. Lewis says, look for Christ and you'll find him and with him everything else. And so as we study the scriptures, as we read, we want to grow in our understanding of he is. And with that, 
comes everything else. We don't read the scriptures to have a happy life. We don't read the scriptures to kind of have some kind of good philosophy. We read the scriptures to fall more in love with Jesus and to understand the incredible love that he has for us. We can never, we're going to spend the rest of eternity trying to understand the love of God and trying to kind of let it come into its fullness in our lives. Yes, John 1 says this about Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, very similar to Isaiah. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's interesting, God speaks, and the world comes about. It says that Christ is the Word of God. In other words, He's the very manifestation of the will of God. He is what God wants to do. And so, as Christ breaks into history at exactly the right time, with a common language and culture and Roman road system that can get this gospel out, can you imagine how heaven must have been? Kind of the angels and Christ all in heaven saying, now, Lord, now. No, no, not yet. Now, Lord, now. No, no, not yet. Now, Lord, can we go now? No, not yet. Same as Christ today is waiting to come back. And the Father knows exactly the right time. He wants to see this world turn to him in a greater way. And so at the right time, the word of God was made manifest. The word of God was made alive. The purpose of God in Christ is obvious. And so let's go through Every book of the Bible. We're going to do a Bible study on 66 books this morning. You ready? To take notes. You've heard it before, but I want to mention it because I think sometimes our Bible reading becomes, here we go again. I hope I make it through Leviticus. And if I get through there, I certainly want to get through Numbers, and I don't want to get stuck on Ecclesiastes. And God forbid that I die in my Bible reading when it comes to the book of Job because it's so confusing. God, would you give me eyes to see? As I read your word, let those be the lenses who Jesus is in this book and every one of the verses. And so in Genesis, he's the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head. He is Abraham sacrificing Isaac. There's a an, an example, an analogy of Christ to be crucified exactly the same mountain, same place, but thousands of years before. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb that saves us. In Leviticus, he's our high priest interceding for us. Today, he intercedes at the right hand of the Father, and God instituted a priesthood in the Old Testament to intercede for us. In Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that we follow. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet, like Moses, sent to show us the way. In Joshua, he is the commander who leads us into our inheritance. So when you read Joshua, see Christ saying, come on, I'm going to show you what God has provided for you and give us the ingenuity, the energy, and give us the weapons and anointing so we can take our inheritance. In Judges, he is the one that brings deliverance. We know Judges, there's all about sin. 
and then getting into bondage because of sin. And then through prayer, God sends a deliverer. This is what he's done to this planet. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 and 2 Samuel, he's our shepherd king. In 1 and 2 Kings, he's the ruler of the kingdom. In 1 and 2 Chronicles, he's our faithful king. In Ezra, he's our temple restored. In Nehemiah, he is the builder of broken down walls. I want to hear an amen. (laughs) We need a pause. Our lives are shattered. The systems of this world and the wickedness of my heart, I have made so many bad decisions that my life was in an absolute mess. God majors in fixing broken walls. Invite him in and say, would you help me restore my marriage? Would you help me restore uh, the way in which I see humanity? Would you help me with the cynical attitude? Because that's a break in the wall that allows the enemy in. In Esther, he's the one who saves us from the enemy's wiles. In Job, he's our restorer. In Psalms, he's the reason for our praise. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the only one who makes sense. That's it. It's only him that gives us that ability. In the Song of Songs, he's our beloved. In Isaiah, he's the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, he's the Balm of Gilead who heals. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. Because I'd love to have gathered you, Jerusalem. God looks at humanity. He looks at your friends you're praying for. He looks at your mom. He looks at your dad. He looks at your kids who you're praying for. And he weeps with you, wanting them to have a relationship with him. So important. In Ezekiel, he's the one who brings deliverance. In Daniel, he's the fourth person. In the fiery furnace, in Hosea, he's the faithful husband. In Joel, he baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Remember last year we went through the book of Joel and we realized this whole history of of, of destruction is all leading up to the fact that God promises us in the midst of the destruction as we see in the world today, he fills us with his power so that we can make a difference. In Amos, he's the one who bears our burdens. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he's the salvation of our city or our country. That whole town repented including the animals. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is in control no matter what. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he's the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he's the fountain of hope. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. In Malachi, he's the one who turns fathers to sons. And sons to fathers. That's how the Old Testament ends. It's the restoration that comes through the church is we turn fathers back to sons and sons back to father. The New Testament in Matthew, he's the Messiah. In, the, in Mark, he's the worker of salvation. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God with uh, the word incarnate. In Acts, he's the builder of the church. In Romans, he's our justifier, sanctifier, and glorifier. One Corinthians. 1 and 2 Corinthians, he's our resurrection and life. In Galatians, he's the redeemer from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he's the Christ with unsearchable riches and power. In Philippians, he's the God that supplies all our needs. In Colossians, he is the fullness of the Godhead. And I'm still not hearing amens. I know that we aren't one of those kind of churches, like, you know, we're always saying amen, but 
goodness sake, somebody's got to say it sooner or later. Yeah, he's awesome. In Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he's our soon coming king. I hope your heart is full of anticipation and you skip a beat and it races when you think about Christ is coming. And the, and the more you think the day is getting bad, realize that he's coming soon. Do I have to say that again? Or are you okay with that? Okay, cool. In 1 and 2 Timothy, he is the leader of leaders. In Titus, he's the faithful pastor. In Philemon, he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he's the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, he's our true religion. In 1 and 2 Peter, he's the chief shepherd. In 1 and 2 and 3 John, he is love. In Jude, he's the truth amongst so much error. In Revelation, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when that trumpet sounds, the sky is going to split. He's coming back and he's going to restore every aspect of his kingdom. That to me is awesome. If the church does not look, sound, and act like Jesus, its founder, then it's not the church, but rather something else. Jesus is always the only true measure of its authenticity. And so today, my challenge is very simple. You need to have a relationship with Christ, but you need to keep growing in that relationship. And he has resourced us with his word. And through his word, we'll understand him. We'll understand his plans. We'll understand his character, his nature, his personality. And through that, we will fall more and more in love with him. And because of that, we'll reach out in the identity that we have as fishers of men. And so thank you, Lord, for sending us your child, this child, your son, who has become our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, principal peace. Thank you that in your zeal you did this. You didn't look at us and say, wow, what a deserving people. Man, I'm just going to send my son. They deserve him. No, he said, in my zeal to create a people for myself, I will send my son at the exact time necessary. And thank God for that. And so in response, here's a quote, fly, Fly to Jesus. Behold, he desires to take you to himself, miserable, poor, blind, and naked as you are. He is willing to clothe you with his everlasting righteousness and make you partakers of that glory which he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. So in other words, there's one response here. Is we're not gonna go out and hug people. We're not gonna go and do some fantastical thing and try and correct some error. No, we're going to fly. We're going to fly into the bosom of Jesus. We're going to embrace him like never before. And we're going to be convinced that it is only through him that we're going to see things change on this planet. It's only through him that this city is going to be different. It's only through him that we are going to see the future the way, we, the way we should. And so let's bow our heads and I'm going to pray for us.